Good morning. Yeah, that was weak. Do that again. Good morning. I'm going to make you nervous too. So let's dispense with all the drama. I have a suit, right? All right, so now you have a question for me. I have a question for you. And please consider this seriously. Have you ever heard of the phrase, a watershed moment? Yes? No? Maybe? Maybe you're sitting here today and you have, and you know the definition, and you're thinking of examples as, I, as I'm speaking to you. Maybe you, you're, you're unsure of the definition, but you're thinking by inference and certainly by example what the definition might mean. And the definition is just right on the tip of your tongue, but just simply out of reach. And maybe you're sitting here today and it sounds meaningless to you. But let's make sure we're all on the same page, shall we? So let me define it. You ready? You ready? You're already on strike two. We're only about 30 seconds in. So here's, let me define a watershed moment. A watershed moment is a turning point, the exact moment that changes the direction of an activity or a situation. A watershed moment is a dividing point from which things will never be the same. It is considered momentous, though a watershed moment is often recognized in hindsight. So for those who knew, I'm sure you're agreeing with this definition. For those who are unsure, I bet you're nudging the person next to you. I told you I knew it. And for those who were unsure or didn't know, actually, I think you really did. But let's, let's consider these things for a second, okay? Watershed moments occur on many different levels, don't they? Such as individual, familial, group, national, global, and universal. But by virtue of this list, we can see that not all watershed moments are universal. They're not all the same. But the question is, are there any watershed moments in history that could immediately and directly impact this list, that is, universally, much like the definition implies? So let's start big, shall we? Here's an American watershed moment. Just months after the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the United States' official entry into the war, that World War II, Naval Pacific Intelligence began to intercept Japanese communications that was identifying a future target as AF. With only so many locations that would be considered a viable attack, naval intelligence sent false communications at the hope of discerning AF's identity. Well, one such attempt, the Navy submitted a false report that Midway's boilers were down. Luckily, in response, the Japanese responded with, AF's boilers are down. So, with a calculated risk, the Navy learned the identity of AF. AF was Midway, and Midway was AF. Midway, Midway was the future location of the Japanese naval attack. With this critical information, the Navy learned not only the date of the attack, but also the size and composition of the enemy forces. Amazing, isn't it? But unbeknownst to the enemy, when the risky calculation was confirmed, that is, when the US saw Japanese carriers that they were spotting going full steam ahead, and for three days, June, June 4th through the 7th, 1942, the United States Naval Pacific Fleet caught the enemy unaware and sunk four of their enemy carriers while only losing one of our own. Had naval intelligence not learned this, Japan was aiming to attack Hawaii as a future stage of ground for a continental U.S. invasion. A true watershed moment, agreed? We as Americans can appreciate this example despite 81 years ago. While its scope may have been immediate, or may, may have had immediate global and national implications, how long after shall this be considered one? 
Will Midway have the same impact in 100 more years? Does it really impact all of humanity? Is it momentous? Yes. But will things never be the same? No. So while this is an impressive example, it doesn't meet the universal standard, does it? So let's go even bigger. Let's go to the beginning, shall we? To the beginning of the United States? No. Even bigger. Let's go back to creation. In Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, we observe Yahweh, the one true and living God, created everything from nothing, and he provides us from a high view, 35,000 feet in the air perspective. Everything created was marvelous and the first of its kind. However, when God created man, he was created in the image of God and was to have dominion over all creation as a covenanted king. In Genesis 2, Yahweh telescoped into creation with a more intimate focus on the pinnacle of creation, Adam. After being created, Adam received the necessary injunction and sanction in the covenant that bore his name. Listen to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat from it, you shall surely die. Adam alone was the federal head of this covenant. He was responsible for keeping it and proclaiming it. But immediately following in the scripture, Adam named all the cattle and the birds of the sky. Yet there was no suitable helper for him. The Lord placed Adam into a deep sleep, took his rib and fashioned his helper, Eve. Now there was someone to proclaim the injunction and sanction to. In Genesis 3, Satan attacked the helper by manipulating God's word, causing her to be deceived and eat the fruit. But surely, surely Adam, the covenant head, the federal head, would set the record straight. Eve gave the fruit to Adam, and he ate. A true watershed moment. Wouldn't you agree? But the question is, how so? Listen to Romans 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man, that is Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Momentous? Yes. Universal? Yes. But will things never be the same? Well, that depends. So in our text today, we observe Mark writing to Roman Gentile Christians about the central figure of all of history and their ultimate response to it. In like fashion, we must respond to the ultimate watershed question surrounding the most central figure in all of history. This brings us to our subject today, who is Jesus? This text will provide us three key components to this ultimate watershed question. Let's pray. Heavenly God, my goodness, you are so awesome. We love you and we honor you. What a privilege it is to come and gather together freely under the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear the preaching of your word. Lord, thank you for condescending to me, to my weak and lowly state, to help me understand the text. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to condescend to each one of us, that we would immediately appropriate this truth in your word and make it ready for application and proclamation. Would you go before us, Lord? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So would you please open or turn on your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 8, and we're going to consider verses 27 through 38. And if you're using the Pew Bibles, that's page 844. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. 
We all ready? Page 844, Pew Bible? All right. Brothers and sisters and guests, now listen to the word of the Lord. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what is a profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. While on the way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, the Lord, Lord Jesus began his private discussion with his disciples and he asked strategic questions. He began with the question about what strangers of the majority thought of his identity. And so Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And the disciples responded with three identities, didn't they? John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. So although option one and two are linked together, let's consider the first option, John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry was a special one. John the Baptist's mission was limited to one function that was one purpose that is preparing the way for someone greater. In Mark chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark quoted three Old Testament passages. Exodus 23, verse 20, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And he wove them into this beautiful tapestry linking their fulfillment in John the Baptist. So let's listen. Mark chapter 1, verse 2 to 3 reads, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make the way of the Lord. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So while being a merger of three verses, all of verse 3 is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And it carried the thrust of the meaning, hence Mark's phrase, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. But similarly, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, we observe the, John the Baptist's own understanding of himself via his discussion with the emissaries sent from the Pharisees. We actually learned that several weeks ago in Sunday school. But these emissaries asked if he was the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. But John's answers to all three inquiries were what? No. The emissaries continued with what sounded like a hint of desperation. Well, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? But notice how John doesn't respond with the name, but with the function and with the purpose. He responded with, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John's mission was to be the messenger and not the object of his message. 
Can you imagine being the emissaries and how frustrated they are? We came for an answer. We didn't get a name. We got a function. But even though John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, in Mark chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, and he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So by John's own words, the distinction of he and the one coming after him are clearly not the same person. And most simply, and I mean this seriously, most simply, at the time of this conversation with Jesus and his disciples, John's dead. Fair enough. He was beheaded. And moreover, Jesus was only approximately six months younger than his cousin John, and despite being dead, the thought of John having come back into an already existing person is absurd and illogical. Wouldn't you agree? And despite this illogical assessment, despite its absurdity, John's resurrection was actually growing in popularity because of the similar calls to repentance. Listen to Mark chapter 6, verse 14. And King Herod heard of it, that is, the ministry of Jesus. For his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But the question is why? In Mark chapter 6, verse 7 through 12, Jesus sent his 12 disciples out, and they preached repentance. Herod's sin was before him because John the Baptist had repeatedly challenged and called out Herod for taking his brother's wife. That was option one. Let's check out option number two, Elijah the prophet. Was Elijah the prophet a mighty prophet? Yes, but the question is, why Elijah? Elijah was the only prophet to never taste death, but instead he was taken directly to heaven, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11. In addition, Malachi's prophecy, a named Elijah by name, would be the precursor before the Messiah. Let's listen to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I am sending to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So we can, be, we can put ourselves in the shoes of, those, of the local Jews and understand why they're looking for Elijah, right? We shouldn't be cruel. We can be fair to them, right? But since Malachi's prophecy, it was common for Jews to search for his return. Yet Jesus' explanation gave us the necessary clarity of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, and Matthew 17, verse 12, when he stated, Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So with prophecy and Jesus' words, how should we reconcile the Elijah-like dynamic? Well, John the Baptist was a wilderness man, and he dressed himself with camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate his wilderness cuisine of savory locusts and sweet wild honey. He dressed the same way, for he too was a wilderness man, that is Elijah. They dressed the same, wearing leather belts and hairy clothing, which was the sign of a prophet. But we can identify with those asking John the Baptist and how the crowds answered by the comparison, right? Let's consider the third and final option, one of the prophets. Well, upon first blush, it sounds, it sounds like a lazy answer. Was Jesus just another prophet in a long line of prophets? Did they potentially mean the prophet that would arise from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18? Maybe. But let's consider all these options. All these options had two things in common. They affirmed Jesus was from God, and he was the Messiah's precursor. Jesus' silence towards their answers indicated those answers were entirely 
wrong. His follow-up question was focused on his disciples' personal thoughts and personal confession because they did have a teacher-disciple relationship. So in verse 29, he asked, but who do you say that I am? They have been with Jesus for some time now and have witnessed countless miracles, surpassing wisdom and an authority never seen before. The question was intended to take all their time together thus far and have them look deeper, to move from the, uh, from the general to the particular, to move from the majority report to a personal confession. Peter, my favorite guy, the group spokesman and always the first one to speak declared, thou art the Christ, home run, grand slam. And Matthew's account of this same conversation, Jesus responded to Peter's confession with, you're going to love this, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father is in heaven. So Peter answered correctly, right? So the question is, who is Jesus? This leads us to our first compliment. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Peter and his fellow disciples, all Jews, knew and learned of the Jewish Christ or Messiah. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah. Those words simply mean to anoint. But the question is, why would this declaration of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, be so important? Well, the importance lies beneath the context of the title. So in the Old Testament, only three classes of people were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. This third class, kings, is where the hope of the kingly Messiah was developed. You see, they knew and understood in part, that is, what the scriptures stated of the Messiah. They knew the promises found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 8 through 17, where Yahweh had declared to David that after his death, Someone special from his lineage would sit on a throne that would endure and last forever. They have read the coronation psalms that proclaim the everlasting king. They have read verses like Psalm 110.1 where the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But despite these insights, the Jews never really had a developed and cohesive understanding of the Messiah. The disciples only had small glimpses, pictures, and shadows of what the Messiah would do. This is the imagery and position what, that Peter and the disciples most likely had. But to be fair, we can imagine the excitement surging through the disciples after Peter's confession. Each one conjuring the images of Jesus placing the Romans under, their feet, under his feet. No more servitude, no more taxation. Yahweh once again blessing his covenant people. You can imagine the joy of being on the front line, on the ground level, watching history unfold. Better yet, watching prophecy being fulfilled before your very eyes. But Jesus was more than the Messiah, wasn't he? He is the Son of the living God. He is God the Son, the second person of the holy and blessed Trinity, who had condescended himself and took on the, uh, the flesh. He had left his throne in heaven and took on flesh, the greatest condescension ever. In Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul stated, He, that is speaking of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. And just in case anyone considered this image of Christ to be merely superficial or just spiritual, Paul continued in that same chapter in Colossians 1, verse 19 with, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In John's gospel, Jesus and the Father are one. Agreed? 
He who has seen Jesus has seen the Father. In John chapter 14, verse 16, Jesus stated, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. Well, another in this verse is the Greek word allos, which means another of the same kind. Since the Father and Christ are one, and the Father sent the Son, the Son will ask the Father, then the Father will send another, equal to both the Father and the Son. Do you see the quality of all three? Well, what else did Jesus have? He had creative powers, didn't he? He healed the lame, the sick, and had the power to forgive sin. In John, we have these figurative representations of the seven I am statements. But he also had absolute statements of who he was. In John, say, 8.58, says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus wasn't confused of his identity. This is a clear foot-stomping moment, and I am God in flesh. So what are we to do with this? With the revelation of Jesus' messiahship and divine power, how did Jesus respond to Peter's answer? Did he instruct Peter and the disciples to tell all of Israel that their long-awaited Messiah was here? No. Did he instruct them to prepare for guerrilla warfare? No. Did he instruct them to prepare for intelligence gathering? No. Did he say invest in the markets? No. What did he say? Look at verse 30. He warned them to tell no one about him. Could you imagine hearing that the Messiah was right in front of you and you can't say anything? Do nothing but remain silent? But what does this response signify? It should signify something. And one scholar said it perfectly. Jesus' injunction of silence arose out of his knowledge of the disciples' defective view of Messiahship. But would you agree with this statement, that a continuing and defective view of Messiahship of Christ still exists today? Do you? Bueller, do you? Yes? Much like the assortment of answers given by the crowd, many purport to know Christ today. Their personal confessions reel a whole host of answers that range from Jesus as a good man to a good teacher or to even worse, a lunatic. Their personal confessions, I read that, excuse me. By today's standards, all views by their definition are all equally valid. It doesn't matter if Christ was the God-man or not. However, much like the distinction between the crowd and the disciples, the closer you get to Christ, no other answer will suffice other than Jesus in the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Let me repeat that. That's essential. The closer you get to Christ, no other answer will suffice other than Jesus in the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Amen? Since this is true... Doesn't, it, doesn't this immediately and definitely destroy the truth standards of today? If everything is equally valid, and Jesus is the Son of the living God, the Messiah, can they both naturally coexist? The answer is no. So consequently, if we espout differently like the crowd, it actually only confirms how distant we are from Christ. So let's back up for a second, all right? Prior to Peter's confession, in Mark chapter 1, we observe the coronation of Christ via his baptism. We observe his defeat of the king of this world, Satan, in the wilderness. We hear the triumphant king declare, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, with the enemy king defeated, King Jesus began to undo all, the all that the previous kingdom ushered in. Jesus was healing casting out demons, and demonstrating the power over sin, even the authority to forgive sin. 
He even chose an unlikely invasion force, 12 fishermen. And they too, by the power of the king, were able to do such things. Pretty cool, huh? So with all these victories and the newly revealed identity, the disciples were ready to go until. Go back into your Bibles. Let's look at verses 31 and 32. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Well, according to the disciples, this is the antithesis of what the Messiah was supposed to do. With Peter's rebuke of Christ, it is, it is the collective misunderstanding of Jesus' Messiahship that's become manifest, hasn't it? How can the Messiah set up his kingdom if he's dead? Pretty straightforward, correct? For the first time in his ministry, Jesus revealed the purpose of his first coming, to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. So who is Jesus? This leads us to our second compliment. Jesus is his mission, the cross. You can imagine, identify what the disciples were feeling, right? Their immediate change of emotions, the surge of excitement only to be met with immediate conflict, the split second it took to affirm Christ's messiahship, and then to hear the swift, crushing reality of his impending death. Also, the shock was only compounded with the reality that their own countrymen would be the Messiah's executioners. Let that sink in for a second. These, while Mark provided us a list of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, these people are important. They're the Sanhedrin, the ruling class. These religiously trained, learned men within Judaism and centered at the very heart where the Messiah was to rule Jerusalem to be his executioners was hard to hear. Understatement? For any earthly king, it's one thing to say that your king will heroically die in battle at the hand of the enemy, but to be betrayed from within was worse. Do you agree? And how much more for the prophesied Messiah to be betrayed and die at the hand of the very people who were trained to look for your coming. Their proverbial messianic thoughts were shattered and left in ruins. Their messianic theology was completely upended. There was no way of arguing against it, for Jesus spoke very plainly that his words could not have been misconstrued. So Jesus now begins to teach his disciples and us what messiahship really means. But notice what Peter did. Peter understood Jesus, and he pulled him aside for the express purpose of stopping Jesus. All right, Peter. The audacity of Peter to question Jesus, God the Son, the Messiah, and declare to him, you ready? You must not die. Home run, buddy. This rebuke was not simply a miscommunication of Peter's part. Oh, no, no, no. Peter rebuked Jesus with the same tone and sharpness and authority that Jesus used to rebuke demons. Talk about the unmitigated gall. So in turn, Jesus did what? Well, he turned to face the other disciples and publicly rebuked Peter. As Peter spoke for the disciples, his, his response may have been also their position as well. But notice how Jesus responded. He stated, get behind me, Satan, but you are not setting your mind in God's interest, but man's. Is he saying Peter was indwelled by Satan? No. 
He is simply saying his point of view is satanic in its origin because much like Jesus in the wilderness where Jesus, uh, Satan tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross, you cannot stop the divine will of God. But let's give Peter some slack here, shall we? Peter was unaware that he was attempting to thwart, impede, and prevent the divine will of God. His statement resembled Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, as I already mentioned. But like usual, Peter spoke impulsively. Hence, I, I swear I'm related to the man. <laughs> he lacked understanding. His spiritual vision was very blurry. However, Peter's answer illustrated the common view of the Messiah. But many neglected Isaiah chapter 53, don't, didn't they? Where the prophets spoke very plainly that the Messiah would suffer and die. No one knew how to deal with the Messiah and, quite frankly, how a, how a Messiah would profit them. That is, a dead Messiah. But listen to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The very elders, chief priests and scribes that were experts in the law, had a defective view as well. A suffering Messiah was a difficult proposition to digest. Instead, this view was actually a minority report. But all the Jews could think, all they could think about was the restoration of the Israeli kingdom. They never considered before the kingdom to be installed, their sin debt had to be atoned. I mean, for quite frankly, what good is the everlasting kingdom when sin is still in the midst of it? But since the first Passover until Jesus' day, Jews understood the life was in the blood. Listen to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you in the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. They understood the necessity of substitutionary atonement, whereby they took a prescribed animal that met all the Lord's requirements and sacrificed it, knowing that that's what they deserved for their sins. And in turn, they understood the animals were a substitute and the blood would cover their sins. But even after the first sacrifice, something should have really sparked their, their interest, their investigation. Because as soon as the second sacrifice was offered, it should have been abundantly clear their offerings could not eternally remove their sin. The shadow in the picture of each atonement pointed to the time where, like in Genesis 22, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. The shadow had become substance in the cross. The type has found its anti-type. Finally, sin had been atoned. Would you agree with this statement, that the cross is an offensive symbol? Yes? No? Maybe? Before Christ, it was a symbol of certain torture, execution, and death. And yet the cross was necessary. The cross was planned by God. And just like Peter, many today attempt to redefine the necessity of the cross by downplaying their influence, don't they? And whether we like it or not, brothers and sisters, the cross says something significant about us. Well, what should it say? Well, if we downplay in any way the severity of it, it reveals a low view of God. Agreed? It reveals a low view of Scripture. It reveals a wrong and dangerous high view of ourselves. Yet that high view of ourselves is smashed by God's legal declaration of all of us, all humanity, of all time, guilty. The Lord has stated in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death. The cross, as grotesque and horrifying as it was, is now a symbol of hope. Amen. Jesus was God's chosen prescribed sacrifice for the remission of sin. He who made no sin, he, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isn't that beautiful? It's wonderful. Jesus' mission did what all the animal sacrifices could never do, eternally cleanse us from our sins. So therefore, denying the necessity of Christ's divine only, divine mission only affirms the distance from Christ and the severity of the wrath to come. Conversely, if you draw close to this glorious and sobering reality, as in Romans 10.9, and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. It's in that glorious free gift of grace we celebrate, we rejoice, we remain, we abide in the one true living God. It is that message that Peter in ignorance was attempting to stop. Aren't you glad Jesus always followed the Father's will? And yet any Christian presentation that downplays our sin, it cheapens the very sacrifice of that cross. And it reclassifies the necessity of the cross. And guess what? It cannot save. The closer you draw to Christ's identity and to his mission, it is only abundantly clear that we are entirely depraved and we cannot deny it. We are guilty. But Christ continues with these hard-hitting truths after he he rebuked Peter. He summoned the crowd to join the conversation as if the difficult news of Christ's impending death wasn't enough. Jesus gave more hard-hitting truths in verses 34 through 38. Now, please keep in mind, while the crowd does not know the impending death, Jesus revealed that following him has conditions, and these conditions are immutable. King Jesus issued three imperatives or commands. Deny, take up, and follow. But the explanation that follows was through a series of paradoxes. You can imagine the the conflict already building within the crowd. Save, lose. Lose, save. Gain, forfeit. So who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of the living God. Two, Jesus is his mission, the cross. And this leads us to our third and final compliment. Jesus is sovereign over discipleship. Would you agree that these commands are very difficult to hear? To lose, save, save, lose, gain, forfeit? How to reconcile how the world sees? Your life sees your value, sees the 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 riches of the world. They were contrary to the sinful nature. For some, they are simply illogical. And quite frankly, we believe that as well prior to our salvation. But prior to, our, prior to the cross, our natures were depraved and fallen. And yet, if we repented of our sins and placed our faith in Christ for the atonement of our sins, his atonement atoned for our entire being. In other words, Since Christ's death atoned for the whole depraved nature, our whole new life is now his to command. Amen? That was weak. Do it again. Amen? Amen. Strike three. The commands of deny, take up, and follow, they're no longer detrimental to our lives, are they? 
They are in fact freeing, for they are now realizing the freedom found in the cross of Jesus Christ. We have been born again. We have a new nature. But quite frankly, this is where the rubber meets the road. Agreed? This is where it's the hardest. This is where we have to trust in the perfect and sufficient work of Jesus Christ. This is where our true nature is revealed. A life that is sinful and detestable is easy to see and it's easy to render judgment. Just turn on the television. How much worse is a life that affirms Jesus' deity and his mission, yet still lives a life of licentiousness, a life of sin? I think we would respond like Titus chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. These actions stand in contrast to Ephesians 2.10, aren't they? Whereby we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let me ask you another question. Would you believe that some Christians oppose this high level of obedience? However, this level of obedience is not foreign to the scriptures. Within the Levitical law, the totality of the Jewish life was governed with the expectation of complete submission. For example, clothing, food, sacrifices, interactions with those within the covenant, interactions with those outside the covenant, business, etc., were all governed, that is, every sphere of life. It demonstrated the severity of the fall and the extent of the fall. Moreover, it also demonstrated the sovereignty of God through every facet of life itself. Yahweh is king. We are his created. We have no bargaining chip, brothers and sisters. We can offer nothing to God. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. The only thing we all deserve is judgment, and rightfully so. Hence the sweetness of God's grace. Hence the reality of the good news. These commands force the person desiring to follow him to count the cost of discipleship. That includes you and I. Denying this wisdom and running headlong without knowing the implications will demonstrate their lack of understanding of their sinful nature, the realities of the cross, and their guilt before the one true and living God. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what's in a question? Everything. For how you answer the question of who is Jesus, the universal watershed question for all of humanity, it has eternal and irreversible consequences. Is it universal? Yes. Is it momentous? Yes. Is this a dividing point from which all things will never be the same? Absolutely. So define Jesus wrongly and the cross will have no effect. A cheapened sacrifice will make our total submission absurd and something to be pitied. So who is Jesus? Please answer correctly for anything that differs that what scripture has recorded will result in eternal and conscious damnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that I honored you by the exegesis of your word. And if there's anything that is wrong, Lord, please forgive me. And let it burn up chaff in your judgment. But Lord... Anything that is true, let it remain and let it impact our lives so readily, so distinctly, Lord, that we respond to it with humble submission, prostrate before the throne of grace. And for those who do not know you, Lord, I pray that you break them and have them weep for mercy. Let them beg for mercy at the throne of grace. Let them repent of their sins 
and place their faith in the perfect atoning work of Jesus. The perfect work. The most glorifying work. The prophesied work. The prescribed work, Lord, for salvation. Lord, teach us and humble us, Lord, that we would honor and glorify you in our lives. Humble, grateful, prepared to honor and worship you with every breath. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. We thank you for the worship that you have allotted us. We just thank you for Jesus, and it's his holy name we pray. Amen.